What up, guys and girls? It's Bobby. And Sean. Coming at you separated. This time, I'm actually down in Austin. Which is in Texas. For anyone that, that was unfamiliar with Texas, I'm down in Austin, and Sean is still back up in the Big Ol' Apple in the only tri-state area. The only, the one and only. Um, Bobby, what would you consider Texas as? There's no, like, I mean, like that in Oklahoma... That's like the Red River rivalry, but I, I don't know what Texas falls under. I would say Texas is Texas, man. I have a special place in my heart for Texas, I'll be honest. I think Texas was cool. I, I didn't mind my time at Hood, mostly because I never had to get into a Bradley, but mm-hmm. Austin was always really nice. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Austin. Uh, a lot of the, the bigger da- uh, Texas cities I'm a fan of. It's just like West, West Texas is just desolate. And barren. I'll but, be uh, honest. When when I drove from Benning, like through Louisiana, mm-hmm. into Eastern Texas, and then down to Hood, I just remember thinking, like, what did I sign up for? Like, oh, dude, I'd go like sixty miles. I feel like without seeing a single person, or like it'd be Texas Chainsaw Massacre type gas stations that you're like, you know, I'm just gonna risk it. I don't care if I'm on empty. Um, so. On Thursday, my sister, or was it Thursday? Yeah, Thursday, my sister graduated from the, or Friday, she graduated from the Air Force, like, captain's career course for a signal, or a mission, uh, uh, military intelligence. Uh, so she, like, graduated from their, like, intelligence course. And that course is held at Goodfellow Air Force Base in San Angelo, Texas. So my family, we flew into Dallas and then drove from Dallas to San Ange- to San Angelo because it's literally in the middle of nowhere. And it's either Dallas is like the closest city to it. And it's still like a four hour drive through like West Texas. It's like in between uh, D- Dallas and El Paso. So if you can imagine like central Texas and how desolate that shit is. I was like this, like, you know, middle of nowhere. Yeah, but I'm sure you saw plenty of belt buckles with the Texas flag and unnecessary oh, yeah. cowboy hats for all the ranchers that don't exist down there. Texas forever, baby. Yeah, that's a that I think they've got more more like pride in their state than any other region does in the country. I mean, like minus maybe like the New England area where they just love like everything Bostonian and Massachusettsy, Vineyard Vinesy, like just that. I think Texas takes the cake as far as I love my state. Oh, yeah. Like a unique state culture and identity. Oh, it absolutely has like a state identity. I mean, I don't think I think that's like why Cowboys for the longest time were America's team. Mm hmm. Because I think uh, what book was I reading? I was reading a book talking about like cultures and like um, associating certain cultures with certain things. And like everyone, when they think of American culture, they think of like, you know, cowboy hats, cowboy boots. You know, loving guns, loving freedom, driving big trucks. And that's like, you know, Texas in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, even the the Germans way back in the day, they had this book. I think it was about like, it was called like Winnetow or something. Mm -hmm. But it was essentially written by a German that I don't think had ever been to America. And he just wrote Western folklore Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. what he thought cowboys and Indians was all about. And it was like massively successful. I think they even talked about it. In Inglorious Bastards, it was like a reference, but I, I read some of those books as a kid when I was living in Germany, and I was like, oh, mm-hmm. this this must be it. And then you see like a John Wayne movie, and you're like, yep, that must be half of the country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
but that's not the truth. Texas no. is pretty diverse, but still Texas. <laughs> Very diverse. Good food. Great food. So just for everyone's uh, edification, I'm down in Austin because my sister got married yesterday. Um, so it's pretty good. It's really cool. Um, the guy that she married, so my sister went to the Air Force Academy, and the guy that she married also went to the Air Force Academy. They're classmates then. He flies a F-15s out of um, Okinawa. So for those that don't know, F-15s are pretty much the only station in either Okinawa or in England because there are, I think as far as, this is my understanding, and, and I'm not like a pilot or like in the Air Force. So like the F-15 is the Air Force's primary like air-to-air platform. So they fly, they fly like strategic missions and have like a strategic mission set, you know, and in Asia, you know, defending against like Russia and China and North Korea and then in England, you know, uh, flying against all the Eastern European threats too. So he's a pretty high speed dude. He's a good guy. Uh, really happy that, that it worked out for them. Well, that's but cool. Can, a, Air For- can Air Force pilots get a Top Gun? Uh, I do not believe they can. I believe that's Navy flight school, but I don't know anything about that either. Mm, it sounds like the Navy's afraid of them Air Force boys. Yeah, but uh, it's very interesting. So his family, he comes from like a long family of military service. And his dad actually brought it up during the rehearsal dinner that, you know, I think it's like 60% of people in the military come from military families. Uh, have you ever read that study or that seen that uh, statistic before? No, I mean, but that sounds kind of kind of right. I feel like most of our friends had parents that were in, mm-hmm. have siblings that are in, maybe like the most like weird relationship, maybe like a an uncle or, or an aunt as far as, as distance is concerned. But yeah, a lot of people had family members that wanted to join. Yes, I think I've actually read an article. I think, I don't remember, remember where, where, maybe the New York Times, like a commentary from like a general saying that, you know, the uh america's like military class ends up shouldering the burden for you know all of america because you know the military is like point what like point one percent of america's population uh of that point one percent like 60 percent of it comes from military families so this general was art was like writing and saying that um the military is becoming like a uh like self-perpetuating cycle of like families like dedicating their lives to serving this country while, you know, the rest of America doesn't really um, understand that or appreciate that and kind of just receives the benefits of these, you know, patriarch families. I think part of that too boils down to the culture shift from World War II to the wars that we started fighting in Korea and Vietnam, the Persian Gulf. And I think a lot of people went from seeing the military as this really great weapon that should be kept in the reserve for like fighting this like giant empire type style warfare to now we're doing all these small country you know prevent the domino effect of you name a a certain regime from taking over in small desolate areas of the world so there's not a huge desire to want to join and commit to a, a mission that doesn't seem as pure as like a World War One, World War Two did, where you felt like your mm-hmm. country was truly uh, yeah. at odds with someone else. Yeah, I think so. But in this case, his family, so his granddad, grandfather was in the Navy. He was like E-9 in the Navy. And then his dad, he has two uncles and his dad. 
His dad was a general in the Air Force. His other uncle was a West Point grad of 85. And his other d- uncle was a uh, was a ranger in like 83 at 175. So he was like, back when it was still rip, was held at the individual battalions. And then he did that and then got out and then got back in as in as a green beret so um he, there's like a huge like family tradition of serving the military and then um the guy that my sister married matt you know he's a pilot in the F, he's an f-15 pilot you know which graduated from the air force academy and then his uh, older brother was in the guard uh as an infantryman and did uh combat deployment to afghanistan so you know his entire family has been like since i guess grandfather so that's before Vietnam, it's probably like in the sixties, you know, through the sixties and seventies. So that's like what fifty years of service in this one family. That's pretty cool. It's crazy, man. But, well, if, uh, if you you get you have kids, you're gonna want them to join. I don't know. Like uh, I was actually talking about this last night with uh, Matt's brother because uh, his wife's pregnant as well. And then he was saying that, you know, he's not going to put any pressure on her to serve in the military. But uh, it's kind of like understood, like um, Matt's uncle, the one that graduated from West Point, his daughter just got accepted to West Point like last night too. Uh, found out that she got accepted to West Point last night. So What a great weekend. It, yeah. So it's just like military service like runs deep in that family and that. You know, you might not push it to your child, but I think they will, you know, pick up on it as a result of, you know, of how you live as a parent. I think that's that's definitely something that is unavoidable uh, as a parent because mm-hmm. I know mine didn't want me to join the military. Yeah. Um, like, just for, again, some background, my dad was a field artillery man. He was Ranger qualified. My mom was a Black Hawk pilot. And so I, I grew up on different military bases uh, around uh, the country and in Germany. And I was always really proud of, of what they did, especially when my mom was an airfield commander and getting to see her take off all the time and, you know, all these flights that she was doing. And then looking up at my dad and my dad's six foot five. So for the longest while, I wasn't even, you know, at his shoulder height. And then seeing, you know, the Ranger tab on his arm and, you know, learning about his experiences was always really motivating. So like in high school, I remember them being like shocked when I was like, by the way, guys, like I'm going to have college taken care of. I'm going to go do ROTC. And they were just like, no, like not, not cool with it. And then I think now they're, you know, they're, they're very happy with how everything turned out yeah. um, just because it was such a, a great experience um, and made me really appreciative uh, to be an American. But I don't know. I think it's weird. I think a lot of military families are always like, oh, I don't think I'm going to want my kids to do that, but your kids mm-hmm. are going to grow up regardless wanting to do exactly what mom and dad did. Yeah. What did, why did your parents not want you to serve? Uh, they didn't want me to serve because they were just concerned with Iraq and Afghanistan in the mm-hmm. early 2000s. Yeah. I think because, you know, they had been successful in the military uh, and they saw, you know, their peers leading different battalions and brigades, they might have had some apprehension as to, like, was this something that was really uh, worthwhile? Did they want their only son to kind of go over there? And I remember talking to me like, that was a, you know, that might have been a little selfish of them in, in hindsight. Like, you know, why should, you know, their their kid not have to raise, you know, his hand and, and go do the same mm-hmm. things that thousands of others, young men and women are, are volunteering to do? 
but I just think it came down to, you know, their parents were both in World War II. They served, uh, you know, at the height of the, the Cold War uh, right after Vietnam. And so they were just concerned that the military was just on course for some big catastrophic World War III type event. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were fearful of that. But since, I think, as soon as, you know, I remember graduating ranger school and my dad pinned the same ranger tab that um, my mom had put on his shoulder back in 81. And it was like a real emotional moment because it was like this was like the culmination of, you know, 20, was like 23 or 22, 22, 23 years of, you know, stepping in, in his footsteps and putting on his uniform when I was a kid. And, you know, my mom getting to fly him around uh, a bunch when they finally got to their duty stations and training. And it was just, it was a really great moment. And I think then they were like, you know what, no, this was the right call. Like we've, yeah. we've been, you know, living our whole lives to get to this moment. Yeah. Like I feel, I probably, I'm going to feel the same way. Like, um, you know, I tell people that, you know, I joined the military because I had this like, you know, cause my parents are immigrants. So I was, I was born in America, but you know, growing up, my parents would always take us back to China and we could, and you know, I remember seeing how people in China lived in like nineties and early two thousands. Um, and then contrasting that with like my life in America, you know, I think I always felt like this, you know, intense gratitude to America for like giving me the life that <clears throat> my parents were able to live and uh, the life that I was able to live in America. So I think I've had this intense like gratitude. So I think that's what motivated me to go into the service. And then because of me, like my sister probably followed into my steps or kind of followed my footsteps in the service as well. The Air Force Academy, going to the Air Force Academy. It's kind of interesting. Like uh, I can definitely see like my kids probably pursuing a similar path, like into the service and, you know, I don't know if that's like a good thing or a bad thing, because, you know, as a parent, you don't want your child to be, um, you know, in danger or, you know, have to, you know, in danger of losing their life, which is kind of inherent in being in the military. So it's like, is there a, a huge contrast or like, a, you know, like a huge, like, uh, like conflicting thoughts, but because you still want them to like succeed and do what they want to do, you know, but you don't want them to be like in danger. So... That's right. And I think one of the things I've learned as I've, I've aged just a little bit is, <clears throat> you know, there's there's always moments in your day to day life where, you know, something terrible could happen and that could be it for you. And I think one of the things about the military I appreciated was you kind of accept some of that in the units that you decide to go to, the missions uh, that subsequently fall on you. And it's kind of like, OK, if if you have to, you know, face some real adversity, it's on your terms. You know, Mm -hmm. you signed up for that, you volunteered for it. And so it's not something where like you're fearful of it, but you can look it in the face and say, like, this was my life. Everything I've done up until this point has been on my terms. I'm going to make sure it continues to stay on my terms. Oh, yeah. That's like one thing that I really got in the military is I'm like extremely comfortable with my mortality. I remember like in probably like my first or second year of med school, we have like small group sessions. And then at one of these sessions, you know, the topic of mortality came up and I was like, oh yeah, I'm comfortable with my mortality. Like, I mean, there's plenty of stuff that I still want to do with my life. You know, I want to have kids, be like a surgeon, do all this other stuff. But at the end of the day, like we're going to die regardless of what we do. And the sooner I think that you accept your mortality, remember that, you know, your time is fleeting on earth. Your time is limited. And then, you know, you have to take advantage of every moment you have on this planet and with life. So I don't know. I just became like, I'm just super comfortable with my mortality and then being able to 
to take that understanding and knowledge and apply it to how I live my life. You know, the, there's a Latin saying that the Stoics use, it's memento mori, just remember death. Like, remember that death is always around the corner and that you should always live your life to the fullest knowing that, you know, any day, like you said, you can step out on the curb, step off the curb and get hit by a car and then that could be it for you or, you know, something crazy could happen. Get in a car accident and that could be it. But you should always remember that, you know, death is always on the corner. You should live your life in such a manner that will support and that you should be comfortable with, you know, comfortable with the fact that you could die at any moment too. I think it's one of the things too we try to answer. A lot of people ask us questions about, you know, should they pursue trying to go to regiment, trying to go to SF, signing up to go infantry. And it's something that we constantly remind them that this is voluntary. You, You decided to do this. If at the end of the day, when you're lying on some bed years from now, you know, nice and warm, surrounded by family, do you want to look back and say, I didn't take advantage of the opportunities I had? Or are you going to be completely happy with the decisions that you made? That's something that you should, you know, reflect on probably maybe not daily, but every week to decide, did I take advantage of the life that I've got? Did I you know, take advantage of the moments that were presented? <clears throat> and it's, I think, one of the reasons I've always felt if you're a fit, healthy, and, and again, this is going to be gender biased, but male, because just the majority of the military is male, I almost feel it's incumbent upon them to give service a thought. Mm-hmm. And I don't completely advocate for everyone needing to sign up and serve because so much of the population is at this point unfit and wouldn't even be able to serve. But if you're a fit, healthy male, there's like a small part of me that says you should have considered it or done it just because this country gives so much to everyone. And I think there are responsibilities for individuals, regardless of your station in life that you should go and serve. And it's one of the things I really dislike about politics because there are so many congressmen, and I'm saying congressmen, pointing out just the men, who speak from this like pedestal that they're the only ones that support troops. They love troops more than anyone else. And then you just look at them, they don't have a single family member that's in the military. Mm -hmm. They all have adult children that are men and women. Not a single one is serving. And they constantly just point back to, I remember my father served. I remember my father served. It's like, hey, when they served, it was literally like 60, 70 years ago. That's two or two different different generations. What have you done since? And if you're so patriotic and you're using us as this platform to get votes, it's just empty and hollow words because you've done nothing in your family to instill that same patriotism into your children, yet I'm supposed to vote for you because I think you've got this like patriotic fervor and zeal. And it's it's one of the things that's been motivating me to think about running for office one day because I dislike how the military is used as a voting tool rather than taking care of service members. It's mm-hmm. like once they get it's the vote, then, yeah, then they're done. They don't ever really look back and say, okay, let's address the VA, let's address military spending, let's address the housing on posts, which is just absolutely awful with like companies like Balfour Beatty. Instead, it's just like, I'm just going to say that American soldiers are worried about Russian aggression. It's like, no, they're not. Like, unless you're like some brigadier general who has to go and sit in on meetings and occasionally gets interviewed by the local, like Colleen star for, you know, all the Fort Hood people. No, no one cares about that. They just want to make sure they're getting paid, their family's taken care of, and they're getting some good training. They don't care about you sitting up on CNN and saying something just outlandish to get their support. Yeah, 
I just pulled up a, an article talking about the statistics of like military service in Congress. So after the Vietnam War, about 75% of lawmakers had served in the military. And then um, that number has slowly dwindled to now in Congress, there are about 96 total veterans. So that's what, less than 10%? How, I don't know how much is in the Congress. But it's like uh, the lowest number. Like it's been progressively dropping since then. And there are plenty of articles looking at kind of the cost of the war, of war and then uh, how much like military service is dwindling in politics. So there's, there's like that growing disconnect like you were talking about, about how politicians want to use the military as either, you know, like a social or, you know, uh, liberal, you know, platform to espouse ideals and whatever and use it as like a political tool rather than what it's intended for is defending this country. And I love that you've got vets in office. I mean, there's the... There's a dude that's from Texas. I can't remember his name. Dan um, Crenshaw. Yeah, the the seal. Seal lost um, eye. You've got uh, Jason Crow, who was a member of the 75th Ranger Regiment. He was actually on the impeachment team for the Dems when they went to the Senate. Uh, Tammy Duckworth, uh, mm-hmm. the p- pilot. Um, there were a couple other. I mean, everyone. Tulsi Gabbard only because she was running. Um, but there are a couple like individuals in Congress uh, and in the Senate. I think, God, was it Bob Dole? There, there was somebody that was just like a stone killer uh, years ago that I had no idea because you know he had served in like World War II Korea and he had a, a huge career in Congress. But it was like something I did not know until well, yeah, you know, I that definitely that dude. Um, but no, they were like he was like an infantryman or something, and just oh, okay. was just a, a body stacker. I'm gonna have to look yeah. that up. But yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's definitely I think a issue in this country, uh, especially when it comes to like the military civilian divide. Like you talk about the military civilian divide and how it's growing in this country. You know, like was it like less than one percent serve in the military or, or veterans in the military, and then uh, and then further like most like those one percent like we mentioned a little bit earlier talking about like about 50 or 60 percent of them come from military families so you know there's a a growing divide between the military and civilians i think a lot of that is incumbent on you know us veterans reaching out to civilians and telling them you know what we did and kind of what we experienced but it's like difficult because a lot of time like i brush it off when people ask me about like what i did in the military i was like oh you know you know i did this did that and like wasn't a big deal but Looking back on it, I was like, it is actually a big deal, and we should be more proud of our service, you know? I No, you know, I absolutely I, should be. I, that was one of the things. I, I went to a, a recruiting event and found out there's a guy uh, from Second Bat that is a year ahead of me here at school. And I'm when we saw each other, and one of the recruiters was like, oh, yeah, he was a ranger over at Second. I was like, wait a second. Like I looked at him, I was like, I'm pretty sure like I ripped with you in 2015 in Afghanistan Mm -hmm. and went over and was like yeah we were there like at the exact same time you know obviously them them following us um but it's like what a small world world and and you've got like a ton of rangers that are up here in New York but you know you don't always have opportunities to to link up with them um I've got a buddy Joe who's trying to set up a, a really big awesome uh veterans initiative to 
you know, a lot of these large law firms do a lot of pro bono work. And so, you know, trying to organize that to help out with veterans issues, whether it's housing, VA claims, mm-hmm. um, you know, and some of the more unrelated things as individuals transition out and they don't always have that support. But there's a huge community up here dedicated to that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think like even with, like, with school, you know, I think a lot of veterans kind of shy away from shit because, you know, you don't want to be that guy. Like, you know, you don't want to be the... Cause you know, like the the perception or like the um, what should we call it, like like the character trope of the guy that always that won't shut up about his service was like the guy that you know they didn't do anything. So it's always ironic that the guys that talk the most about the military service, the ones that experience the least, where you know you have like guys like me and you who have been there, done that, and then who don't really talk about what they did because they don't want to come off as like bragging or you know sharing too much. I think that's uh that's something that I tried i like at least i recognized that and i wanted to get better at like sharing my experience but it's still so weird for me to like kind of like to me it feels like bragging like you know of all the stuff that we did in the military it feels to me like a lot like bragging you know yeah i think it's a fine line like i didn't want anyone to know at school that i'd serve just because <clears throat> i think higher education in general is very very liberal mm-hmm. and like while I sit in the the middle lane there and maybe lean like a little bit more left on some issues than others, I didn't want some, you know, like very far leaning individuals to automatically judge me on my prior service compared to, you know, how I interacted with the other law students and how I interpreted the law because it's all about interpretation Mm -hmm. and dealing with the ambiguity between precedent and, you know, a, a new fact pattern and resolving that issue. So like it's slowly but surely like, you know, I've, I've told some of my friends just that I was in and that was kind of it. Um, and I mean, that's kind of it, but it, you know, we, we talk about like reasons for getting out though. And I know you're going back in, but what were some reasons that you decided to say, okay, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to be a doctor and then I'm going to go back in the service. For me, I had always intended on becoming a doctor. I don't know if it was like because my mom drilled into drilled that concept into my head when I was like age of five up until like I went to high, like graduate went to college. She like drilled that idea in my head like you need to become a doctor. But that's like the uh, that's like the immigrant dream, like the American dream, right? That people talk about like a lot of immigrants come to America and like work really hard just so their kids have like the opportunity to go to med school, to go to law school, you know, to become businessmen, to establish themselves uh, in American society. Uh, so like I always had the, you know, idea in my head, a bit, maybe a bit of like a self-fulfilling prophecy of going to med school. So I did like med, pre-med at West Point, but then I made the conscious decision to, you know, go into the army, go to active duty because I wanted to do, to serve, you know, do the army thing to not because you know like as a doctor in the army you can argue that like you know you're not really in the army you know you're not really doing army things so i wanted to get the experience of doing you know serving and doing the army experience and getting that experience so i did that you know with the big army the regiment and then uh i got to the point where it was either i my time in regiment was come to a close so either I go to career course, drop my packet for the Q course or SFAS or go to selection or, you know, go back to big army. So those are like my two, you know, routes left. And at that point in my career, I was like, you know what, this is a perfect time for me to apply for med school and go to med school because I didn't want to go back to big army to go to do FA shit. Like there's no fucking way I wanted to go back to big army and do FA. 
And then SFAS, I knew if I went to, the, to Green Beret, became a Green Beret, that would push my timeline, become a doctor to the right, like significantly, you know. Uh, if I knew if I went to become a Green Beret, you know, you have the two-year pipeline. Then I know, I, I knew that I would want to get team leader time, get eight team time. So that would push me like another two or three years. So just doing the math, I would be probably sitting at like 31, 32 by the time I applied for med school. And then, you know, you don't necessarily want to be super old when you go to med school because you don't want to be necessarily behind, you know, in timeline wise. So I just got the point in my career, in my military career, where I was like, you know, this is a perfect time to <coughs> apply for med school and, and go that route. So that's just what I did and just worked out timing wise. And what do you think you're going to do like after after you're in the army for a number of years, you think you're going to stick it out to, you know, like late twenties or do you think you'll want to get out and, and do something uh, sexy in the civilian world with that, with that yeah, so doctor? I, I'm pretty sure I'll just say the 20, um, by the time I finish paying back all the time I owe, I'll be at about 15 anyways. So my plan is just to ride out the 20 and then retire and then go do whatever. I haven't quite decided, but I don't know if that's what I'm going to do or what I'm not going to do. Cause I honestly have a, I have a sneaking suspicion that I'm also going to love being a, a doctor or a surgeon in the army. And I have a sneaking suspicion that I'm going to want to stay past 20. <laughs> Cause you know, there's plenty go work, of go work at regimen or group. Yeah. Cause you know, there are plenty of, uh, special operations, uh, positions, uh, joint special operations missions like JSOC has surgeons that work for them. So I have a sneaking suspicion that fast forward like 10 years when I'm in that position or, vying for that role uh i have a pretty strong suspicion i'm gonna want to stay in the military and continue doing you know the, the cool guy stuff with the jsoc units but it'd be really I, cool yeah but at the same time though i don't I, can't, I don't have a crystal ball and i can't tell you if, but my plan right now is to get out of 20 and then go out and do civilian stuff like retire at 20 and then go do continue to serve like my i would love to be able to do you know, like some nonprofit work, like Doctors Without Borders, go work and do humanitarian missions. Um, and I know Christina actually wants to do something like that similar. So, you know, I joke that she should go become a uh, CRNA and then we could start up our own surgery practice and then go, you know, travel the world doing surgery for free to like uh, third world countries or low income countries. That'd, that'd, be awesome. that'd, be my, that'd be my, that'd be a dream for me. But, you know, military civilian side this there's a lot of options i can go um but i just have to play by ear at that point well, that's cool man i i really would that's the next thing for cronus in, in 20 years we're gonna have a doctors without borders yeah that'd be like that'd be i think in my mind that's like what i want you know it's all about service and giving back and making and helping people out and improving people's lives and that's something i've always believed in from like a young age uh, to give back and serve others and help improve other people's lives. And obviously that's the mission of Cronus to give back, to improve other people's lives and, and, you know, not do it for ourselves, not make any money off of it, but just do it to just make the world a better place. Yeah. I think that was one of the things I thought about with getting out. I felt really good about the opportunities that I'd had um, and, and like you, I think I, I also wanted a little bit of a reset period just because the eight years in the, the army, w you know, had been a lot with, you know, some personal stuff uh, mm -hmm. and then with deployments. And so I, I was ready to push like reset and kind of just look at what else can I do 
as far as service is concerned? Because I, I feel like at some point in your your military service, especially on the officer side, you kind of reach this point where, yeah, you're going to learn a little bit more between like this year and next year. But for the most part, I feel like if you're like a an experienced captain, you can do the job of a major, you know, up until battalion command essentially and then maybe mm -hmm. you need a little bit more experience to go from you know that field grade position into leading you know 1200 to 1600 soldiers and I didn't feel totally challenged by that and I thought that if I got out I'm gonna reset go get a degree that has the power to help change lives and you know has uh more opportunities than I had in the military to to affect uh, a different type uh, of person in need, um, and I think law provided that for me. And so mm -hmm. now I'm I'm trying to work. And Fordham has an incredible public service uh, reputation, and they've got a, a huge resource center to help with you know your summer employment and um, working for nonprofits. And it's really motivating because that's the kind of thing that you know, I find myself being very interested in. And, you know, I'll have some friends at school that are, you know, they corporate law uh, pays very, very well. And people love working for corporate law because a lot of them have massive debt. I mean, going to like law school and just like, you know, at med school, it's incredibly expensive. So if you haven't earned something like the GI Bill or you don't have a scholarship, the passions that you have for service with your law degree are, are going to be kind of, uh, checked for a, a little bit because you, you won't be able to realistically pay off that debt in a timely manner by oh, working yeah. those nonprofits. And fortunately, with the GI Bill and Yellow Ribbon Program, like I'm not going to have that problem coming out of school. So it's like I can kind of pursue those passions, which I'm excited to do in a couple years. Oh, yeah. I know medicine is very similar thought process. Um, I know, like, uh, just a general like a uh, theme in America is that uh, primary care, nobody wants to go into primary care anymore as, as a doctor because primary care doesn't want really to pay that much, to be honest. And then when you take, when you think about the cost to go to med school, and this is just for, to let everybody know kind of how the system works for medicine in America. So, you know, you do your undergrad degree, typically take loans for undergrad because you're, you know, you're not, you're not serving the military or getting your college paid for. So you have loans for undergrad. Uh, a lot of people go get master's degrees. Um, so you take loans for master's degrees. And then you go to med school and you take loans for med school. So you're talking about like eight to 10 years of schooling uh, where you're taking loans out for. So a lot of people, a lot of my classmates are graduating with like a half million dollars to a million dollars in debt. And then after graduating from med school, you go into residency. So you have like three, depending on which specialty you go into, the minimum is three years, maximum is about like 10 years of training where you're getting paid like 60 to 70 thousand dollars a year as a resident but you're still in a, you're a doctor in training so you don't make uh like attending pay like a doctor's pay like people think about doctors making like hand over fist and money but you don't really get to that point until you're in your mid-30s where you actually start getting to your earning potential and start realizing your earning potential as a doctor so by that point you think about like financially you know, you've, you've accumulated like 500,000 to a million dollars in debt by the time you even start training and then you're not paying off and the loans, the interest rates are kicking in like as soon as you graduate from med school, but you can't really pay for the loans because you're only making like 60 to $7,000 a year for, you know, three to 10 years of training. So you're, you're like 
you know, you're from a financial standpoint, like you can't, you're severely tied to your job as a, as a doctor and you have to make that money because, you know, you're a million dollars in debt and you have to pay off this debt before, you know, you know you're, you're, you're kind of like, like racing. Yeah. It's like, you're paying that debt off for the rest of your life because you have like a half million dollars, a million dollars in debt just to become a doctor. So, you know, doctors, we always say that, you know, doctors always want to help people, but at the same time, you have to think about yourself. And I think a lot of doctors, you know, face that, that challenge of being able to provide for the patients and doing the right thing for the patients, but still recognizing the fact that they have like almost, you know, they're severely in debt and then making that money to pay off the loans is like a huge challenge too. So like in medicine, that's a big challenge right now is that a lot of specialties that aren't, that don't, aren't very competitive in terms of paying, uh, like in terms of salaries, you know, the, the, those specialties are receiving, are seeing like less and less qualified candidates and less and less like, uh, the good doctors are the ones that are, you know, the, the not the good doctors, but like the ones that are the smartest ones, the ones that are probably the best at medicine go into specialties that pay a lot. So, you know, it's gearing towards getting, you know, get, making money so that you can pay off your student loans. And that's a, kind of a, a bad dynamic, definitely in the, in the healthcare system in America and medicine in general in America, because, you know, and it also kind of erodes the trust that people place in doctors because they are, because doctors, um, you know, have competing demands between their financial stability and taking care of people. And that sometimes that line is blurred. And that's uh, kind of a shame, I think, in my mind, because, you know, I didn't pay anything for med school. Like I have zero debt coming from med school, so I can literally do whatever I want in medicine. And that's such a, such a freedom that none of my classmates can experience because they have to take into account like earning potential and how much money they have to make in order to pay off these student loans. Well, malpractice insurance too. Yeah. There's so many like costs associated with practicing medicine in America and that, um, now you have to like pretty much build your practice out of, you know, taking into account the financial aspects of it. Like, you know, Medicare or Medicaid insurance companies only pay for certain things. And then you can't, you know, practice medicine the way you want to because insurance won't reimburse you for what you do. So it's just like a whole bunch of things that, you know, you have to take account when practicing medicine. And that's just kind of the shitty part in practicing medicine in America. It makes me wonder like what would happen if we had a sing- if we if we adopted a single payer system in America too, or like alleviate student loans or, you know, I think, at, you know, Bernie has some, has some good points about, you know, student loans, like leaving student loans and maybe moving to like a single payer uh, health system where the costs are better realized and doctors, you know, aren't faced the challenges of, face, of paying off the student loans. And then, you know, all the insurance is covered by everybody's insurance. So there's a lot of like challenges and new concepts that I think that need to be changed in America, especially when it comes to healthcare. One of the things that I've, I've considered in running is I'd like to get this subsidized loan program started. And unlike what Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren want to do, where it's like, you know, up to $50,000 to just wipe your debt, <clears throat> I disagree with that kind of blanket approach. If you go and you get, one, the degree has to be something that has some utility for society. Mm-hmm. You, you can't get a degree and, like, for instance, history. Like, history's important. History's cool. I need that, though, to translate to providing something for individuals. Now, with history, though, if you take that degree and you go into teaching, 
I'm going to subsidize. I'm going to help subsidize your loan. The government then will take over, you know, a portion of your loan. If you come from this place that you're going to go and teach, you know, for two to three years because America is in desperate need of teachers and teachers aren't getting paid enough. If the government says now, all right, if you go and you teach in these like rural parts of the country or you teach in these areas of the country that aren't performing and you stay there for like three to five years and you're giving back somehow, uh, you know, through service with the degree that you have. One, you're going to take, I'm going to take care of the loan for you. Two, uh, we're going to increase the pay for those school systems. So it's no longer like a power of the state, state responsibility for the funding. Um, and, and three, it's going to increase, I think, the general knowledge base of the population because now you have these younger teachers coming in, um, different, you know, methods that they've learned through their, you know, probably at that point, 23 to 27 years of life experience and the different mm. teaching practices that have evolved. But, you know, especially then for, you know, we talk about doctors and lawyers, the, the cost of going to school is so expensive and there are so many, um, like, the, the, the desire for individuals uh, to go into these nonprofit worlds that are in such need of representation is just not there any longer. Um, now we can start filling those gaps with individuals because they can do and pursue the kind of professional work that you know they originally wanted to when they signed up for those schools. I I really hope that someone would recommend that rather than just being like we're just going to erase massive amounts of debt because I think that's that is completely unfair, especially for individuals that worked really hard to pay for their schools and you know have some incredible degrees to show for it. But if there was something in the country, and we go back to this idea of service again, rather than maybe doing mm -hmm. military service, if you do public service, like we take care of, just like the GI Bill, you do a couple years of public service, you get the GI Bill, essentially, but we'll call it like the civilian bill. Mm -hmm. And it'll promote service in the country, it'll promote selflessness, um, it'll get the best people into those industries that they would have shied away from because they have this mountain of debt that really is just bringing them down and not allowing them to pursue, you know, the, the great, the things that made this country so great in the forties, fifties and sixties when we took off and we were like the world leaders in math and science. And, you know, now other places in the world are, are passing us because they're, they, they give more to their teachers. Um, it's looked at as a very prestigious job. And if, if we switch the, the roles and make individuals want to go and work in these fields rather than, again, like what we were talking about, getting people to go into these sexy occupations that are going to pay more so they can get their debt reduced at a quicker rate, I think that would really promote a, a more American way of, of going forward and, and promote like a, a culture that we should sustain. So how do you feel about the idea of like compulsory service, not just military service, but like compulsory public service? Because that was like an idea for a while uh, of like having, you know, high schoolers graduate from high school and then do like one or two years of public service or, you know, military service so or some kind of service. Germany does that. They call that, I think, in Bund. Um, Israel's got the service. I'm not too sure that I think everyone should be forced mm -hmm. into service, but I think service should... should should be optional, but it should be, I mean, it's almost like they should dangle a carrot in front of us yeah. just a little bit more mm -hmm. than making it just seem like, you know, this is a, a last resort. I, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to some really ignorant people who look at the military as a, 
as a place to serve for individuals that have nothing left. That, that right. this is like a, a last choice, the, the last option, last chance, which is like completely false and such an ignorant thing to say. And, and it's also, it just shows a lack of maturity and um, I think uh, gratitude for, for this professional organization. But if you make service more attractive by offering things like you know the, the subsidies on the loan, the, the higher paying jobs, people will think of it less as a last, res, you know, last means of, of, of success and more as a, of, as a first choice. So people want to graduate. And I'm not saying that people don't go to school because they want to be teachers. I'm saying that I want, you know, just like when people are picking their branches in the military, it needs to be hyper competitive to go and teach. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be so highly sought after that our class sizes aren't you know, any longer 35 students to one teacher or 20 to one teacher. It's, you know, like 18 to one. It's a, it's a lower ratio. It's more hands-on training for, for these kids uh, from their very, you know, junior teachers, but very knowledgeable because we're now we're getting the best and the brightest. I mean, can you imagine if all these engineers coming out of MIT that have these massive bills are told, hey, we're going to take care of your loans if you go teach math, you know, at some underperforming school district? Mm-hmm. Like, can you imagine how smart those those kids might be, or what kind of influence that might have on a younger population? And again, not saying that the math teachers in these underperforming districts aren't trying their hardest or doing their best, but I think if we incentivize service through some financial subsidy, um, you're just going to see, I think, a general increase in uh, you know, that profession in the, the average uh, teacher. I think it looks like that in the military, too. When you make it hyper-competitive to join some branches, you typically have some more standout individuals. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm definitely one to think that all branches are not created equal in the Army. Um, I think you have a lot of combat arms branches. You have a lot of maneuver support branches that are, that are more likely than not to get the high performers compared to some of the other, let's say, non-functional branches. Mm-hmm. And if we make that for the civilian side of the house, I, I only think you're going to get uh, more high performers going to to support that selfish mission. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I 100% agree with that. I just wish that it'd be an, an, it was an option for like uh, kids to even understand that because I know in med school they always send out these uh, like um, emails to us, our financial aid offices. There's like national medical, like uh, public service scholarships uh, for med for students to, to like serve in like the, you know, in like under in like rural areas as doctors, and there's like a lot of money behind it. But you know, I don't think any of my classmates are going that route because that's just not something that's been stressed to them that this is a like a very viable option to get their med school paid for, and to still get you know practice medicine in the very underserved areas. Um, but people just don't appreciate that or understand that or maybe just don't recognize the uh need for service or the you know the idea to give him back maybe that's just the sentiment in america is that people worry are more becoming more and more worried about themselves and their futures rather than you know the greater good and giving back and help serving the communities and helping to raise you know america yeah and i think that has kind of been one of those unfortunate divides in the country where 
you know, you look at the, the arguments over immigration and you look at the arguments over funding for schools and scholarships and, and where this, you know, uh, $15 trillion GDP is, is being spent. And, you know, increased costs in defense, um, mm-hmm. you know, depending on how the, the stock market's doing. And a lot of it just comes down to people not wanting their dollars spent on things that they directly can't see right. um, the results of. And I, yeah. that is like, you know, I, I get it because the whole no taxation without representation, like going back to the Boston Tea Party and why we fought the Revolutionary War. But one of the great things about this country, and it's like it's written on the Statue of Liberty, like, you know, give me your tired, your weak. Um, I think you're hungry. I don't remember the rest of the inscription. Yeah. But essentially, you're supposed to be able to come here. And because of our tax policies and because of all of our you know, families being immigrants at one point, you had to rely on the government to prop you up initially, and then you went forth and did some incredible things. I mean, mm-hmm. all of the all of the great contributions from the, you know, first, second, and third generations of uh, immigrant families after, you know, they got here, worked their asses off, and then came up with some incredible technology, some incredible new patent that revolutionized the way that Americans live. I mean, that's the kind of things that people have to have a little bit more patience for than just this immediate gratification, knowing, oh, my tax dollars went to this, and I'm, I'm getting to experience this. And it, it, needs to, it needs to radically shift. And one of the reasons with the news and never f- focusing on the important stuff, and we're always focusing on all this negative, you know, uh, talk that, that's been nothing but divisive as a country, we really are taking our foot off the pedal of mm-hmm. improving and, you know, evolving as a country. Oh, yeah. I think it's also like the political system in America, too. Like with a four-year election cycle, you think, you know, the most people are looking forward ahead when they're in office is like, you know, the next term. So you're talking about presidencies. You're only talking the presidents only thinking about, you know, doing things in the first term to get reelected for the second term. So it was a very short-sighted vision. Whereas you look at some other countries that have, um, like I hate to say, like China or Russia, like you have these uh, almost dictatorships, but what they have one person in power for 20, 30 years, and that's a longevity and a vision that, you know, ex- that extends uh, into the future. So people have, like China has like, China doesn't play, like thinks about, China never thinks about like the five-year goals. They think about 50, 100-year goals because that's, you know, the history, looking back in the history of China, like talking about dynasties and, you know, thousands of years of history, um, you know, they recognize that, you know, a country's power isn't dependent on what happens in the next year or two years. Rather, a country's, like, legacy extends to, like, the next century or 50 or 100 years from now. And it's always about the long game with China, whereas in America, I think, you know, we're too preoccupied with the short game and short-term goals that, you know, we lose sight of the, of the long-term, like, you know, um, like you can talk about like, it, like education in America, like we've put no money in education in America, but yeah, that's like clearly the future of our country and it manifests, it's already starting to manifest now, like with, you know, uh, with the voting population, people not recognize or not being exposed to like these new ideas or, you know, global concepts of like economy and stuff. So, you know, you see it manifest in our, in our voters and that just perpetuates that cycle of, you know, of, of, of uneducation and just poor vision for the future, you know? And it's when we've, we look at the, the legislature, you know, you have the distributive costs and the, the contra- concentrated benefits. And if 
everyone has to burden the cost of, say, a bill, but the benefits are distributed to just a small amount of the population. Like, it's going to be highly contested, and people are going to be, you know, you have like a, a, a problem with, with free riders just trying to attach their name to a bill. It's one of the things that was super frustrating in this whole process now trying for the Democratic Party to, to pick an individual to go up against uh, President Trump. Everybody is so, I, I don't know what the, the right term would be. It's like they're just adversarial, not focusing on the important things. But everyone just wants to tout the record in the Senate or the House. And when I, I go back mm -hmm. to this free rider thing, people take responsibility for all these bills that have been passed. Well, they've just thrown their name on them. Right. And as if that is now the measure of success. It's, I mean, like Amy Klobuchar did it um, when she and Pete Buttigieg were going back and forth like two weeks ago. And it was just like a really immature comment because, one, if we think the measure of our future president should just be in what they've passed or what they've voted for one time in the Senate on a bill that nobody remembers. I mean, I can't remember a single bill that any of these individuals really came out with that have revolutionized this country in the last four years. Like, I, ca I can't even think of a bill that's like, I mean, the, um, like, Obamacare is the last bill that I think has been yeah, so incredibly focused uh -huh. and uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, research where people are like, okay, like, who brought that up? How did that go through the legislative process? Uh, what was it trying, you know, what was the evil it was trying to rectify? Those are things that people remember, but all these other bills that people just talk about, it, worthless. Like, I, I mm -hmm. truly could not tell you a single, and I'm in law school and, you know, taking common law, I can't tell you, like, half of the bills that are in Congress right now that are actually going to have, like, some major implication mm -hmm. um, in play in the, in the future five years. But people yeah. just, you know, are going to tout their record as if, like, I've, I, my life has been changed because this random bill that had a whole bunch, uh, you know, it was, an, om it was a, an omnibus bill. Like, I, I can't tell you what other packages were included in that. Right. Yeah, it's kind of funny to bring up the Obamacare Affordable Care Act. Um, I had a patient one time that was like, "Oh, Obamacare is the worst," and I was like, "Look," I asked him like, "Well, what's your insurance? Like, where do you get your insurance from?" And they're like, "Oh, I get my insurance through the Affordable Care Act." I was like, "Do you not understand that that's the same thing?" You know, <laughs> and as it speaks to the education level in America, that like, people are so politicized that you know they think Obamacare is like the worst thing that happened in America, yet they're receiving health care because of the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, that, you know, they're just so politicized by the media that they just don't even can't connect the dots, you know? Yeah, I mean, and for, you know, a lot of the military listeners that we've got, like, we've seen the benefit of increasing the defense budget. It's one of the things that, like, never fails when it goes through Congress every single year when we set our budget, and it increases like every single year to account for either new technology changes or new weapons that we're trying to develop. You know, but it's like all these new technologies, like, yeah, they've made somewhat uh, of a difference for us in Afghanistan and in Iraq, but we also have to remember that the enemy that we're fighting hasn't like really changed any of their technology since the Mujahideen was taking on the Russians. Right, right, you know, right. But yet we constantly evolve our weapon systems. Like, do we really need to spend the couple hundred million dollars more on this, you know, updated drone, which maybe in 30 years we might need? Or, or you know, maybe we should allocate those funds somewhere else. And it, it, it kind of goes back to this idea of, of the selflessness and being aware of the communities in the country that could really benefit from mm -hmm. that money and not just being very nearsighted, but 
you know, long term, the more educated a population is, you know, the better we do at, you know, in our economies. Um, I, I really just hope at some point there's like uh, a very clear, you know, meeting of the minds um, in the country politically, and it's just not so divisive anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And it's just, I think, kind of the, you know, system that America has, the election, the political system, is it doesn't really set you up for long-term success because, like, what one president, like, initiates, you know, like, take a, for, like, for example, like, Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, like, it's already being dismantled pretty much by the current administration. Like, you know, this this one bill has the potential to change healthcare in America. Yet, you know, depending on the next whoever is elected next, that can go away you know, or stay and, and get changed from what it was intended to become. So it's just kind of almost sad, you know. When people wanting to, you know, the the pre-existing conditions and just how incredibly uh, ex- expensive it is. Like it just goes back. Just look at. You know, we, we're paying some farmers in the middle of our country not to farm. Right. I mean, like one of the things the legislatures with that, you know, in, in Article, uh, was it Article 1, the, the Commerce Clause, you know, they have the, the power to, to regulate commerce. Um, and in that, they can control, you know, the, the budget in the house, I- exactly how that happens. So if we want to control prices of a certain crop, we're going to pay farmers not to farm their land. You know, and it's it's that kind of thing that, like, I had no idea about uh, before I, I came to school. But it's like, just think about that. We're paying farmers not to farm to control wheat prices mm-hmm. or to control corn prices or to control, like, soybean prices. Um but yet we wouldn't spend that same money, allow them to farm, which would drive uh, some of the price down in those areas. It would provide us with more food that you know, we could help uh, for um, communities that are disadvantaged here in this country. I mean, there are food deserts all over the city that would benefit from you know, lower costs for produce. Um, it would employ more people. Um, or we just use that same money to support, like you know, what Bobby and I were talking about with the healthcare costs. And Absolutely. subsidize again people's uh, co-payments when they go to the hospital and they need it. I mean, it's it's absolutely sad that we're the most affluent country in this world. We lead on almost every single front, even though we're no longer leading um, in education. But yet, people in this country who are working to build that GDP can't just go and simply, you know, be healthy, and they can't find out that you know, with rising healthcare costs that they need these, these, you know, necessary surgeries to stay alive and to have a higher quality of life. It's, it's almost embarrassing, I think, that other countries that don't have the proud history that this country does, that don't give its citizens nearly as many freedoms when it comes to speech, um, religion, and politics, uh, have healthier individuals uh, thriving um, and living longer than Americans. That's, that's oh, yeah. not how it should be. We should be yeah. we should be the world's longest living population, the most affluent, and the happiest. Oh yeah, like uh, I actually had a class the other day about kind of healthcare costs in America, and if you look at the data, it's like for the amount of money that America spends the, of every country in the world, like America spends the most on of its the most money on healthcare. Yeah, we are not even top thirty in you know healthcare statistics in the world, like or maybe like top twenty or something like that. But it's like embarrassing how much money we spend compared to the rest of the world. Yet we have the some of the worst outcomes, and it's a lot of it is a lot of costs associated with sicker people, 
and that um like you know like the sickest 10 percent of uh, america accounts for 90 percent of healthcare costs like you and me we like the healthy people a healthy population in america like the 50 percent that are healthy accounts for like less than eight percent or less than 10 percent of the healthcare costs in america instead it's the sickest like 10 percent that account for 90 percent of the costs in america and a lot of the, a lot of the these costs and like the sickest people is mostly just due to like we were talking about like education, you know, access to healthy food, access to produce, access to, you know, access to a doctor when you're, you know, before you get sick. Because these people, when you know, you don't, it's not like one day you just become sick, you know, and have chronic conditions. It be, it's a long process of like 10, 20 years of eating, you know, McDonald's every day of drinking you know, two liter of Coke every day. Dr. That Pepper. Leads. Yeah. And like, as, as much as we like, um, stress, like, yeah, I mean, cancer is something different, but you know, like these chronic conditions, like obesity, the diabetes, hyper, high blood pressure, like high cholesterol, all of these things come from years, decades of poor education and not understanding how to eat, how to, you know, get access to a doctor, being having access to the healthcare system. And then, you know, fast forward till you're 50 years old, you have like a heart attack and then you are super sick, you know, and then you start accumulating costs in America. So the, I think that, you know, the aim right now of healthcare isn't, you know, isn't preventative. And, and that's another issue like with medicine, like preventative medicine is, you know, the best way of reducing costs in America. But nobody wants to do preventive medicine. Like the primary care physicians aren't getting paid. They have 15 minutes with a patient to see a patient. They only reimburse for 15 minutes by insurance companies. So, you know, you have 15 minutes to talk to your patient of counseling them of, you know, proper diet, proper exercise, proper nutrition, how to like prevent the diseases. But you don't have the time to spend with each patient. Like I remember working in a primary care office with a doctor and he saw 30 patients a day. Like, can you imagine spending like five, 10 minutes with a patient and being able to educate them on all their health problems and being able to counsel them on how to, how to be healthy, but you don't have the time to do it. You don't have the mental energy. You don't even have like the mental capacity or the emotional capacity to really dedicate yourself to, to helping these people. And that's one of the things I liked about CrossFit though, um, (laughs) with what Greg Glassman was trying with, you know, his initiative. And we, we always in the workouts, we have prescribed weight. Well, can you imagine if, you could have prescribed to a patient to go and and exercise like hey instead of making you take this incredibly expensive drug um you know because we've given it a patent they can charge you know an astronomical fee for the next 20 years imagine for like hey we're going to give you a year-long uh you know prescription to go to to any one of these like five gyms and you go to these five gyms. And now that you're at the gym, now these coaches who only want to see you physically succeed are going to give you nutritional coaching. You're going to be in an environment where people are going to motivate you to work out. I think a, a more fit, healthier individual is less likely to get sick. Like, you can correct me if I'm 100%, wrong on that. 100%. So that's just the kind of thing that if medicine gets away from, you know, people ingesting chemical pills to, you know, uh, pumping iron, then you're, you're going to have uh, a better and healthier population that it also significantly less costs. I mean, like these pills, some, some of them I'm hearing like, again, like $500 a pill. Yeah. Like $500 in some parts of the country will get you three months of a gym membership at a really nice, like CrossFit box. Um, or, you know, almost every single one of our programs combined, if you, you add up all the costs plus some shirts and stickers. Yeah. Uh, but that, that's the kind of thing. So instead of getting a, a, 
a pill pack that is worth, you know, like $4,000, that $4,000 could have been spent for over two years worth of programming and nutrition coaching. Mm -hmm. But that's like another commentary on America. I mean, like nobody, everybody knows what, what the right thing is. Everybody knows they should eat better. Everybody knows they should exercise. Everybody knows they should go to the gym. Everybody knows they should sleep more. Everybody knows they should drink more water and they shouldn't drink soda and avoid sugar. Like everybody knows that, but people still choose that choice, make that choice because, you know, it's easier to do that than to go to the gym and to suffer, you know, like nobody, like, like it's just for us, it's just so ingrained into us now that, you know, with physical fitness and training that it's just so ingrained to us But the, for the vast majority of America, it's like, you know, why would I go to the gym if I could just take what, like, why go to the gym for an hour every day and, and like suffer in the gym and sweat when I can just take this pill that makes me, you know, makes me quote unquote healthier. But that's, a, oh yeah. You know, or why, why do that when I can take one of these like shit inducing teas that my favorite influencer is pushing for the week. Yeah. Um, or this like, you know, fabulous fit, uh, new spanks that I'm going to wear that are going to increase my body temperature and thus I'm going to burn an extra 50 calories per hour. And that translates to, you know, I can eat one more donut a day and I'm going to be more toned cause it's going to cut off blood circulation. So then, you know, my muscles will atrophy and I'll just shed the fat. Uh, yeah. But that's just kind of like American culture too. It's like. You know, everybody wants the easy way out. Nobody wants to put in that work. Now, everybody wants to get big, but nobody wants to lift no heavy-ass weight. It's, it goes back to patience. Nobody has patience to see long-term goals through. It's short-term, immediate Instant gratification. gratification. But, yeah, that's kind of the commentary. On, well, big commentary in America right now. <laughs> now that, you know, we, we fucking love America, and this is just coming from a place of love, not from a place of hate. Like... There, I think this is a conversation that everyone should be having in America. Like, you know, if you love your country, you should really take these in, a, in account. Like, America is a great country, but there's so many things we can do better uh, across the board that we should really focus our attention on. But we're not. Instead, we're focusing on, you know, the, the election right now. We're focusing on the coronavirus. We're focusing on all these stupid, like, negligible, you know, media divisive issues that... Uh, just bugs are, on a windshield. Yeah, they just deflects us from the true like true issues at, at hand that are the ones that are really you know challenging america like talk about like racism systemic institutional racism you talk about like the you know, lack of immigration all these huge issues like lack of education poor education poor funding for the department of education you know all these huge issues that have you know lasting implications in the future we're instead focusing on you know the coronavirus like small little insignificant issues like that don't really play much in the future you know yeah i mean we're america we should be big like the ocean and hot like the sand there is no reason why we shouldn't be just rolling around in sleeveless shirts all day flexing our guns on everybody and and like worrying about all these divisive topics that are separating us from like truly getting one mm -hmm. to mars we should be the first country to get to Mars, colonizing the moon, like big long-term goals. I mean, what did it take? It took uh, like, what, a thousand years to build the Great Wall of China? And like, look mm -hmm. how long that has, you know, stood the test of time. Not only that, it was just defended by Matt Damon uh, in, in the Great Wall, <laughs> another great, you know, commentary on <laughs> patience and culture. Mm -hmm. um, but like, we should have something like that that stands the test of time for America. Uh, you know, let's... Let's get America um, 
ahead of everyone else in the world and, and make it a place that people want to immigrate to, like like millions of people already do. But let's make it so that their next generation of Americans, because that's what they are, um, are, are given an opportunity to to improve the country. Absolutely. Nobody goes to a place, by the way, to make it shittier. Yeah. Like yeah. It, the, I've never heard of that concept. Uh, you know, it, it again, going back to the immigration, it's something that people always talk about. They're just going to make their, their who, who in their right mind looking to improve their lives would just go somewhere just to take a shit on it. Like that makes absolutely like it's illogical. Nobody mm-hmm. does that. They want a better life. They're going to chase that better life so that people that are growing up are appreciative of that struggle, just like you were talking about with your parents and wanting to do something with your life to like show gratitude to the country. That, that's what immigration does for the United States. It is not this, <laughs> it's not this like dump bringing you know, immigration flux that we constantly hear about. That is, that is the wrong way to approach you know, how to make this country improve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this like, comes down to the education and being short-sighted because, you know, and it's come down to the media and politics, like certain people are saying that these immigrants are going to steal American hardworking American jobs. Well, you know, if you think about it, uh, if they're better than you, why wouldn't we pay someone that's better than you to do your job for you? You know, do better, be better. Yeah, be best. Again, this is I think the second or third week I've. Oh yeah, <laughs> be best. <laughs> Melania Trump immigrant she came out with a decent saying, let's just be best or be, be somebody. Best. I think she meant to say be somebody. No, absolutely. Just be somebody. You know, if someone's outworking you, that it shouldn't be, you shouldn't turn your congressman to pass legislation that makes it, makes it difficult or makes it harder for somebody to outwork you. You know, you shouldn't instead work harder and be better and be best and be somebody. Yeah. It's not like these people are Richie, Ricky Gerard and they're just beating you on workouts because they're, they're on Endurable um, and Andrew, and you know, they're coming here on a clean playing field. Okay, guys? Absolutely. They're not taking SARMs in the gym to whoop your ass on that wad. All right. I think we've got to wrap it up. It's, uh, I got some stuff to do today. We'll be on. We, yeah, I've, got a, I've got a lot of reading. Speaking yeah. of reading, we're going to start a book club. We're going to pick some good books. Yep. Um, I promise I won't recommend just The Lord of the Rings and The Witcher. Um, and Bobby's not going to just recommend game theory with uh, medical practice. Yeah, I'm. As, I think we have both have pretty varied reading preferences, so I think we can. We're definitely going to get some pretty good books out there for you guys to take a look at. I mean, I know I read a lot personally on my on my side, both literature and like nonfiction fiction. So I'm actually really excited to start start implementing and putting some book recommendations out for you guys. And things we won't recommend, just in case people have apprehension. We're not going to recommend the books that your battalion commander that can't do 50 push-ups but runs a 13-minute two-mile is going to recommend wearing a Stetson at, like, you know, a hail and farewell. That's not the kind of book club we're going to be. We're going we're gonna to recommend stuff that will actually make you, like, grow as an individual. It's not going to be all, like, military history either. That's, like, 100% for sure. Like, reading about some... We're not going to make you read... Uh, Erwin Rommel's The Desert Fox. We're not going to make you read um, The Art of War. Like this is going to. There's going to be some really fun readings. I mean, like one that I'm looking to pick up is The Courage to Be Disliked. Um, you know, stuff that that'll challenge you uh, mentally, emotionally, um, but will be a fun to you know thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, any other closing comments, Sean? 
uh, take advantage of the week. We're going into week four of the Ranger V5 program. As always, I'm loving doing these uh, Stairmaster workouts on the weekend, so expect that to continue for you all on Saturdays and Sundays as a way to flush out the system for the, the previous week. Um, sign up for, for Ranger School for RASP and SFAS and, and challenge yourself. Absolutely. You know, be the best you can. Be best. Be somebody. Uh, and we will catch you guys next week. Bye. Later.